Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to Girls on Film, the film review podcast from a female perspective. I'm your host, Anna Smith, and this episode is in partnership with Amazon Prime Video. Today, we'll be testifying to the greatness of an all-time college comedy classic, Legally Blonde. Film critic and former barrister Helen O'Hara will be joining me to discuss the film, and I am thrilled to welcome the two women who adapted Amanda Brown's book into a screenplay for Legally Blonde, Kirsten Kiwi-Smith and Karen McCullough. Law school? It's a perfectly respectable place, Daddy. Honey, you were first runner-up at the Miss Hawaiian Tropics contest. Why are you going to throw that all away? Going to Harvard is the only way I'm going to get the love of my life back. Oh, sweetheart, you don't need law school. Law school's for people who are boring and ugly and serious. And you, Button, are none of those things. Well, Kiwi and Karen, welcome to Girls on Film. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having us. I am so thrilled to have you on because we're obviously huge fans of Legally Blondes here. And I know your screenwriting partners. Can you tell me briefly, let's say, um, Kiwi first, how you both came to the project? We came to the project when it was sent to us as a, as a manuscript and it was being shopped around Hollywood and a couple of different producers happened to send it to us at the same time and we fell in love with it instantly. The concept was great. The character was great. We'd only written one movie at the time, which was 10 Things I Hate About You. So uh, we were very excited to be able to come in and kind of give our ideas about it. And the producer, Mark Platt, ended up securing the rights with MGM and and hired us to write it. And I think we went into the pitch meeting with like pink clothes on, some a lot of pink pink pants and such. I think I was wearing pink pants anyway, but I just went in being blonde. I don't remember having anything pink <laughs> on. Just my hair. I am blonde. I was going to say that. We should full disclose because this is a podcast. So we don't necessarily know what each other looks like currently, but I am blonde and watching that film thoroughly related to it. Just wonderful to see not just blondes, of course, but young women who are often underestimated being represented properly on screen. Karen, tell me for you, in terms of that representation, what did you feel passionately about in terms of the story? Well, we often write about women who are underestimated. That's kind of one of our thematic things that we gravitate toward. But yeah, I think definitely blondes are underestimated. And Actually, when I graduated college, my father convinced me to dye my hair brown for job interviews because he didn't think anyone would take me seriously. Wow. And I did. I was brunette <laughs> for a couple years. It was awful. And then I went back to blonde. I was like, fuck it. I don't care if anyone takes me seriously. I'm going to be blonde again. Did you notice a, a difference in the way people treated you? Yes. Wow. What was that? I think they probably did take me a bit more seriously, but it's not our job to educate people that you know, blondes are smart. They just have to figure it out on their own. So I refuse to play that game anymore. <laughs> well, you just make great movies about that subject. As you say, 10 Things exactly. I Hate About You is one that I loved as well. I mean, you guys really do specialize in that kind of very accessible, very entertaining, but thought-provoking and 
kind of quietly groundbreaking stuff. Thank you. Kiwi, um, what kind of research did you do once you got the gig uh, for this? Well, we went to law school for only a week. I cried most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) We went to Stanford Law um, during the orientation week. And I think it was confusing for a lot of the other first year students who were going because they were like, why are these women here? And why are they asking us so many questions? (laughs) (laughs) They were starting their new lives. And here we are with like pens and paper being like, where were you born? Where, you know, why did you come to law school? But we got a great idea for just like that whole scene where Elle is sitting around a circle, like meeting all the very eccentric characters that go to law school. Because that was one of the things in our research trip that struck me the most was that those were not kids just out of undergrad. A lot of them had engineering degrees and there was a few doctors there and, you know, PhDs. There were people that had been off doing things and then decided, let's add law school into the mix. So I thought that was really interesting. They had been deworming orphans in Samoa. (laughs) Uh, My name is David Kidney. I have a master's in Russian literature a PhD in biochemistry, and for the last 18 months, I've been uh, deworming orphans in Somalia. Hi, I'm Elle Woods, and this is Breezer Woods, and we're both Gemini vegetarians. I have a bachelor's degree in fashion merchandising from CULA, and I was a Zeta Lambda Nu sweetheart, president of my sorority, Delta Nu, and last year, I was homecoming queen. Oh, two weeks ago, I saw Cameron Diaz at Fred Siegel, and I talked her out of buying this truly heinous Angora sweater. Whoever said orange was the new pink was seriously disturbed. Aside from the research, uh, Karen, did you bring any of your own personal experiences to the screenplay? Uh, Yes, a lot of the sorority stuff in the beginning, because I was in a sorority when I was in college. So what kind of, is there a specific scene that we should look out for when we're rewatching this again on Amazon Prime? Oh, just a lot of the silly stuff, like how she had to judge the fraternity tidy whitey contest and just all of the silly stuff, pretty much. <laughs> well, we don't have sororities here, but I think we're sort of weirdly fascinated by them for that reason. You know, they seem so otherworldly, and but I see them in movies so much. It's kind of a strange thing. That was actually just a giant mansion that Greek letter signs were stuck in front of. That wasn't a real right. sorority house. We didn't have a gym in my sorority. We didn't, you know, it wasn't a sweeping grand staircase. Ours was much more modest at my university. They always have but... a staircase, don't they, in the movies? <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> how else would you make a grand entrance? Very true, in your wonderful pink gown. Kiwi, um, did you both go on set much? Yes, we did. And I mean, you mentioned the sorority. We did go with the director on a research trip to UCLA to the sorority there. And he was just like wide eyed and in sort of wonder because he's an Australian. So like you And they don't have sororities there either. Yeah. But we were, we were very welcome on set. It was a very joyful place to be. We shot in the summer in Los Angeles and everyone was really having a, a really pretty delightful time. Well, that comes across in the movie, actually. It just looks like somewhere you want to be. Karen, we, we've sort of touched on the feminist aspects, but one thing we've been really impressed with in that film is the fact that women really ultimately support each other and it's as much, if not more, about female relationships as it is romance or male-female relationships. Is that something that was important to you when you were writing? Yeah, and I think that was one of the things that surprised me in the reviews was that a lot of the reviewers mentioned that like her sorority sisters were so supportive of her and they weren't mean girls like are often portrayed in movies about sorority girls. And, you know, everyone in my sorority was very nice and supportive of each other. So that wasn't like a 
a weird thing for me to portray, but it did show how many times, you know, girls have been mean to each other in movies like that, if it was surprising to people that they were nice. And we loved the idea that Elle is very competitive with Vivian and she's competitive with Elle sort of over this guy. And then a real kind of love story in the movie is how they find their friendship. And I mean, that's one of my favorite things about it. And I think also Karen and I just, we have a long friendship that's like a deep sisterhood. So that always burbles through in in our screenplays. Now, I heard a dog there. Is that your dog, Kiwi? Yes, that's my dog, Trudy, who weirdly looks a lot like Bruiser. Um, I adopted her at the beginning of lockdown, and she's an adorable little chihuahua who is trying to say hi. That's so nice. So you've got your own little Bruiser. It's a life-imitating art. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you carry her around? It's crazy. I have a couple times at night, though. I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to do it in the middle of the day. <laughs> Well, I want to see some pictures. I think you should put them on social media. Yeah. Is there anything surprising that people might not know about Legally Blonde? Well, Bruiser wasn't very nice. I remember that. Oh, no. (laughs) You're breaking my heart. I know. I brought my (laughs) tiny little dog to set to play with him, and he just wanted no part of it. He was just a bit of a diva. He was in the middle of work, Karen. (laughs) I know. He was memorizing his lines. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm taking it that Reese was a delight. Of course. Absolutely, yeah. She's the best. Was she the kind of actress that you had in mind? Because she just seems to perfectly embody it in the final product. Yeah, she absolutely did. I can't imagine anyone else doing it. And is it right that you actually had Luke Wilson in mind when you were writing? We did. We always called that the Luke Wilson role throughout the entire writing of the script. (laughs) (laughs) And the casting director sort of kept putting other people in the mix and finally... After a table read that we had, we were like, can we just maybe go out to Luke Wilson now? And he was like, oh, that's a great idea. We were like, we've been saying it. <laughs> He's like, you're right. We should get Luke Wilson for the Luke Wilson role. I'm like, I think we should. Yeah. Thank goodness he said yes. Exactly. Now, I know you're, there's certain things you're not allowed to talk about, but are you allowed to talk about some things that you're working on together at the moment? Sure. Yes, we are currently writing a kind of reimagining of the movie 10 the Blake Edwards movie with Julie Andrews and Dudley Moore from the 79 79 so yeah. we're, we're doing kind of a female reimagining of that movie and it's been a lot of lot of fun to write during this it's great to write comedy when the when the world is going through so much upheaval will you please come back on Girls on Film and tell us about that when it comes to fruition we'd love to definitely yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to leave us about Legally Blondes? And because I, I think we've got some real hardcore fans listening, but we might be a few people that have never seen it and they're in for such a treat. Well, we did invent the bend and snap at the bar in the Lermitage Hotel in Beverly Hills. <gasps> did we, you? we used to ask them to put a plaque up there saying the bend and snap was invented here. And they just looked at us like we were crazy ladies. <laughs> so that we still have no plaque. I feel like that needs more of a story. Come on, tell me more. <laughs> How much alcohol was involved? <laughs> I think a a couple of drinks at, le- at the very least. The script had been pretty refined. It was almost done, but Mark Platt, the producer, said, we need a big set piece, a big scene in the second act. We're missing that one big scene. So we just were like weeks of tormenting ourselves. What are we, are we going to have a heist in the salon or what can we do? And he also wanted it to involve Paulette. Yeah. We were like, maybe it's something just as simple as 
Elle teaches her a move to get the UPS guy. And then Kirsten bounced up off her stool and said, like this. And then we were like, yes, the bend and snap. And then Robert Lukatic turned it into like a musical number, which we weren't expecting. Right. But, you know, eventually became like a dance routine in like the gay discos of Europe the year afterwards. So it's just, it took on a life of itself. Have you ever done it on a dance floor? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> the producer made me go to teach Tony Basil, our choreographer, the move. So I had to kind of travel around and show dancers what this imaginary <laughs> step was that I had invented in randomly. And it was really surreal to see like this come to life with a bunch of people going, oh, yeah, and Tony Basil would be like, oh, a little more chicken arms. We like those. And I would just be like, what? <laughs> it was That's a bit so surreal. surreal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really is exactly what I was saying. Yeah. I mean, when you came up with it, was it based on any actual experience? No, I think we were just being silly. <laughs> More silliness. You hadn't successfully pulled a guy doing the bend and snap. Oh, that's disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you it has happened. Yeah, listeners, if you have successfully pulled a guy with the bend and snap, then please write in. <laughs> well, I've got to say thank you both so much for your time. And it's just been such a pleasure to revisit this classic film and to speak to you two who made it possible. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anna. We're big fans. Okay, I'm gonna show you a little maneuver that my mother taught me in junior high. In my experience, it has a 98% success rate of getting a man's attention and, when used appropriately, it has an 83% rate of return on a dinner invitation. Wow. <laughs> it's called the bend and snap. Watch this. <gasps> I think I dropped something on the floor that I need to pick up. So you bend and snap. See? Now, we have good news. Fans will be thrilled to hear that Legally Blonde 3 is on the cards. Although there's no official release date yet, Reese Witherspoon has confirmed that she will return as Elle. And with the Mindy Kaling pen script, it sounds like we're in for a feminist treat. Well, Helen O'Hara, welcome back to Girls on Film. Thank you. We last heard from you back in episode 34, uh, where we talked about Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Absolutely thrilled to have you back on today to talk about Legally Blonde and Lawyers on Film, so quite different subjects. Now, there is a reason that I asked you specifically for this, because <laughs> in a former life, you were a barrister. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, when I was younger, I was quite sensible, and I thought I'd do a job that would, you know, give me a good living and be sort of socially useful. And so I studied law at university, and... I didn't love it. I, I loved some of the more kind of highfalutin theoretical law, but the actual practice I didn't love. But I kept kind of sticking with it because I thought, well, come on, you know, you, you've come this far, you've got to give it a go. So I went through, obviously finished my degree, uh, did bar school for a year, did my pupillage for a year, which is kind of apprenticeship that barristers do in the UK. And then at that point just decided, no, it still wasn't working. I'd given it a go. And I kind of jumped and two months later or three months later, I started Empire as a film journalist. So, hey. I remember that because I was freelancing for Empire at the time. And they're yeah. like, oh, we've got this barrister in. And like, but she's <laughs> a really good film critic as well. I'm like, wow. That's obviously why I'm very interested to speak to you about Legally Blondes. I mean, I personally love this film. I think that just like its lead character, it's deceptively clever under that pink and bubbly exterior. <laughs> Are you a fan? Oh, I'm a huge fan. I mean, I, I did. I rewatched it last night, obviously, knowing we were going to talk about it today. And 
With hindsight, I think some of its feminism is a little clumsy and certainly its story is ludicrous. And I say this with love. That's not possible. It doesn't happen. But <laughs> it's just so charming. And I think, you know, Reese Witherspoon is so unstoppably good in that role. I think because it's actually very close to her. You know, she's an incredibly bright woman, incredibly motivated. And I think someone, you know, who, who again was raised sort of southern gentlewoman and, and so she has that, all that gentility and all that breeding and everything she's been raised to be very nice and proper but she's also this firebrand and I think all of that comes across in the role and that's why she's so good in it it's interesting that you say you don't think it's realistic because I've actually seen mm. Wired magazine do really interesting YouTube where they get experts in to analyze movies from a professional perspective so they had a lawyer in looking at Legally Blonde and it's actually <laughs> she thought that the arguments that Elle makes are very well-reasoned arguments, even though, as you say, the subject matter is absurd. Oh, yes. <laughs> what do you think about that, like, in terms of her th reasoning? Yeah, I don't mean to over-egg that, actually, but her reasoning is sound. Little bits and pieces of the law that we hear are, you know, real bits of law. I think it's more just the way it's presented in some of the details. Certainly none of that would fly in the courts of England and Wales, which is the system that I learned. But even in American systems, it's very much um, the kind of fantasy of law, I think, rather than its reality. You don't generally get a witness on the stand confessing to the murder that your client is accused of. Unfortunately, life would be a lot easier if you did. <laughs> That's a very good point. Well, as you suggested, there is quite a strong feminist bent or intended feminist bent to, to Legally Blondes. And yes, looking back, it can look a bit simplistic. But Nonetheless, I think we need those messages in a very mainstream format. And one of the things I liked about it as well is that it doesn't necessarily demonise the love competition. So Selma Blair plays the new girlfriend of her ex. And um, they're supposed to be as odds with each other. But what I really like about this film is that they end up actually becoming almost friends and yeah. finding an area where they can relate to one another. Did you enjoy that? I love that about it. And I think it's so clever because it is, as you say, the obvious thing is just to make them rivals and make them opposites. And there's enough of that there. There's enough of that kind of tension between Vivian, isn't it? Vivian and Elle to make them, you know, to, to give resonance and to make you believe that they wouldn't like each other, that they would butt heads for reasons other than just awful Warner in the middle. Yeah. But you can also see why they would become friends and it doesn't feel like a, a sudden shift when that begins to happen. And as you say, that is a feminist message. I think so many films pit women against each other, especially over men, but not only. And this one, in the end, it's more about female friendship, really, than it is about the relationships. There is obviously this bubbling under romance that Elle has with, with Luke Wilson's Emmett. But literally, they don't even kiss on screen. They don't go on a date. You know, that's all sort of just background that you can kind of feel happening. But that's not the focus. The focus is actually, in the end, you know, you get more time nearly for her friendship with Vivian. Yeah, that's a really lovely part of it. Were there any particular scenes, Helen, that you, when you rewatched it, that you were like, I think that is gold. That's one of my favourites. Oh, I mean, just so many. I love her in class kind of beginning to stand up for herself and saying, oh, I'd want the client guilty of, isn't it, malamimpse because I want the dangerous case, you know, and, and sort of just beginning to kind of fight back, I think is really lovely. I also think that she's she's very well drawn because I think there is an element of 
intellectual snobbery for some students. You know, those introductions mm. at the start where everyone's been off in Africa helping orphans and she's sort of been advising Cameron Diaz not to buy the wrong top. <laughs> and there are elements of that, I think, in these kind of elite universities. And I think it's good to acknowledge that. Again, they play it up and they play it for laughs and they play it a bit simplistically because there are also gorgeous and extremely well-dressed women at these universities. But, it, you know, that kind of stuff really rang true to me. And when she begins to kind of stand up for herself and win those people over with her sheer brains, I think that's really cheer-worthy and inspiring. Ms. Woods, would you rather have a client who committed a crime malum inse or malum prohibitum? Neither. And why is that? I would rather have a client who's innocent. <laughs> Dare to dream, Miss Woods. Ms. Kensington, which would you prefer? Malum prohibitum. Because then the client would have committed a regulatory infraction as opposed to a dangerous crime. Well done, Ms. Kensington. You've obviously done your homework. Now, let us look at malum prohibitum a little more closely. It has been said. Yes, Ms. Woods. I changed my mind. I'd pick the dangerous one, because I'm not afraid of a challenge. How realistic do you think other films are featuring female lawyers? And we're going to come into a couple in a minute, but um, are there any that you'd like to pick out that you've seen that you think are either very truthful or completely absurd? I think a lot of the absurdity tends to be on TV, weirdly. I think films, because they have, you know, there's a, there's a more limited number of lawyer films, they tend to be a little bit more cautious or a little bit more concerned with kind of earning their place on the screen. Because I'm thinking of TV shows like Judge John Deeds, if you remembered that, where mm, yeah. at one point I think the barristers appearing in front of him a member of the English judiciary, the barristers in front of him are his ex-wife and his daughter in one episode, you know, and I mean, that kind of thing, you're just rolling your eyes. Literally, when I was in Chambers as a pupil, people would come in the morning after that show was on, unfailingly just tearing it to shreds for its its kind of craziness. <laughs> so you get a lot of that on TV. And, you know, Ali McBeal as well, remember, was was full of these lawyers with all of these personal connections appearing against each other in court just because it adds to the drama. I think the biggest single problem with lawyers on film, or female lawyers especially, is the same one you get with female journalists on film, actually, which is that they are forever sleeping with people that they shouldn't be sleeping with. <laughs> so, you know, it's the same with, with all these journalists who sleep with their interviewees in movies. You get all of these lawyers sleeping with their clients, sleeping with witnesses or members of the jury in that, what was that one film? I think it was, was it Dennis Quaid? So there tends to be quite a lot of that. And, and I mean, you know, again, that kind of goes back to things like Adam's Rib, where you've got a married couple appearing opposite each other in court. So there's a long tradition of injecting a bit of sort of sex into proceedings, if you possibly can. When you fail to do that, you get something like class action where it's a father-daughter and that's the kind of conflict between the attorneys. But they always want to make it personal when I don't feel like they feel the need to do that when it's two men. There doesn't seem to be this personal vendetta element. And that really comes in when you have a female lawyer in the mix. That's really interesting. That's probably part of, as you suggest, some kind of ingrained sexism, even mm. if it's unconscious. 
Very interesting. Well, hopefully not sexist is the film On the Basis of Sex, directed <laughs> by Mimi Leader. It's a true story of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, played by Felicity Jones. Let's have a listen to a clip. There are 178 laws that differentiate on the basis of sex. Women can't work overtime. We have to get credit cards in our husband's name. We're not allowed to work in something. This is amazing. You think you can change the country? You should look to her generation. They're taking to the streets. Protests are important, but changing the culture means nothing if the law doesn't change. What did you say your name was? Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, on the basis of sex, what did you think of this one, Helen? Well, I love this one because I'm a bit of an RBG, as she's known now. Super fan. I think uh, she, she became known as the Notorious RBG as a sort of joke about 10 or 15 years ago. And she remains just this unstoppable force to be reckoned with. And there's also a fantastic documentary about yeah. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which covers some of the same ground, but not all the same ground as the film. And she's just an incredible person. So, you know, a, a role like this for any actress, I think, is fantastic. And I think Felicity Jones, honestly, is one of our best young actresses right now in this country. And what's great about this film is, I'm not saying it makes you want to burn your bras, because, of course, that's a myth and never happened. But it does make you want to stand up and fight the patriarchy. It really does, because you've got this incredible woman who graduates top of her class while raising a daughter, while caring for an incredible husband who was suffering from cancer at the time and can't get a job because the legal profession in her day was so stacked against her just with men who wouldn't consider hiring a woman. So she went into first academia, then she started working for the ACLU and she just made her name and basically made the ACLU focus on feminist issues and, and women's issues to a degree that they really hadn't before. She changed the world. She certainly changed the US and changed the focus of the law in the US and continues to do so from the US Supreme Court. So she's just such a freaking hero. But I think what Felicity Jones does really well in this film is make it clear that she's also a person. She's a person who's a terrible cook. You know, she's a person who's a bit weird sometimes. And she's a person who did a lot of what she did because she made an incredibly good marriage to a man who supported her which I think is something that is often underplayed in, in films about women's empowerment. I remember, I think, talking to you about this at the time when, when we saw each other in the screening room and just the fact of seeing her husband, played by Ami Hammer, greeting her at home, you know, having cooked dinner in that era. Yeah. We just don't see that on film. And yeah. that in itself was so refreshing. And we also discussed the fact that some male journalists perhaps had naturally not had the emotional response that we had or not even noticed that mm. because, you know, it doesn't impact them quite so much. But I think for us female critics watching that one scene, it just suddenly realised how empowering that was. Yeah, I don't think men realise that Army Hammer has never been dreamier than he is in this film. <laughs> yeah. Man totally. from Uncle, I know he has all the nice suits and everything, you know, but this is where it's at. I mean, it's it's just so attractive. Guys, get on it. Yeah, he can cook for me any day, yeah. Um, what do you think of the courtroom scenes in On the Basis of Sex? I thought they were good. I mean, obviously they're limited because it took her so long kind of to get into court, but I think that's actually kind of a strength because that's the reality of being a lawyer is that you're not in court 
most days or anything close to that, you spend most of your time at home with a giant stack of papers. And some lawyers, there are extremely successful lawyers who never go to court. And I'm not just talking about solicitors. You know, obviously in the UK, we have this sort of divide between barristers who are court specialists and solicitors. You also have barristers who never go to court because they are just so specialized in such particular areas that they work everything out on paper. So what I actually liked about On the Basis of Sex is that the court scenes are very limited because that is the reality of a, of a lawyer's life. And certainly one working at the level that Bader Ginsburg did, you know, and does, because she's not spending all her time up on her feet arguing. She's spending all her time looking into precedent, looking into the facts, looking into the detail and thinking out entire philosophies of law. So that I loved. The court scenes here are less fiery because they're mostly appellate cases. So it's mostly telling people what has already been established as fact. It's not interviewing witnesses quite so much. Uh, so they give us a little bit of that. But really, it's all about the law itself rather than the trial, if you like. And as I suggested, a jolly good watch that has a good strong sense of the character at its heart. So yeah, we'd recommend that one. Thank you, Helen. Mm. Another older film featuring a female lawyer or student lawyer is Joel Schumacher's A Time to Kill, starring Sandra Bullock and Matthew McConaughey and based on a John Grisham novel. Bullock plays a student lawyer working on a very tough case of vigilante justice. How do you wish to plead? Not guilty, Your Honor. Yeah, you sure you want to be known as the man that defended that murderer? Why well, toss away a promising career? I'd really like to help you with the trial. You ever seen a man executed? What I suggest you do is you go watch a man be executed. You watch him die, you watch him beg. I don't like your politics, but you do have passion, and that's something Carly needs right now, and maybe so do I. If you was on that jury, what would it take to set me free? You sat me down, and you said to me, what I can offer you is a chance to save the world one case at a time. He's taking justice out of your hands put it in his own. You tell them boys, we need some clan down here in camp. Helen, I believe you watched this again recently as well. Could you explain a little bit more about the story? Yes. Yeah, so Samuel L. Jackson plays a character called Carl Lee Haley and his daughter, his 10-year-old daughter, is horrifically raped and attacked by two white men. And after the attack, she survives, much to the men's shock and amazement. So they're arrested on her testimony. But after the attack, Carly Haley goes to this lawyer he knows, Jake Brigands, who's played by Matthew McConaughey, and sort of says, okay, in, in cases like this, did the guys go to prison? And Jake has to admit that no, they mostly didn't. A white man attacking a young black girl in the deep south of the US. So Carl takes the law into his own hands and shoots both men on their way to be arraigned. And then, of course, himself is put up on a trial for murder and Jake becomes his lawyer. So that's the trial we're talking about. We're talking about the the most sympathetic possible victim or, or perpetrator, really, of a crime who is now facing the death penalty, potentially, if he's convicted on all counts. Sandra Bullock plays Ellen Rourke, who's a, a law student and the daughter of a very, very prominent lawyer up north who sort of volunteers her time because she wants to fight the death penalty, basically. So she's kind of the idealist who comes into the middle of this and provides very key information at very key moments to help Jake out in his, in his kind of defence of Carl. How did you find Sandra Bullock's character in this and her performance as the lawyer? 
I mean, I think her character I really like, you know, because it is the kind of the idealist. I volunteered on death penalty cases when I was still a law student. I spent three months in Houston trying to help out in whatever way I could, which was obviously extremely limited. So I, I absolutely agree with her cause. I absolutely understand what would drive her across the country. And of course, she's rich, so she can just turn up wherever she wants and, and help out wherever she can. The problem I have with her character is less about her and certainly not about her performance. It's it's kind of how the women in this film are generally treated the film's racial politics have come under focus in recent years, and, and rightly so. But actually, its sexual politics are pretty outdated as well, because mm. all the women almost in this film are kind of victimized or threatened by men, and all the hero men are sort of preoccupied with defending women all the time. And that includes Ellen, Sandra Bullock's character, who basically is abducted by members of the clan, mm. by Kiefer Sutherland's character, and, you know, comes close to dying as a result. So... It's less cheering than it should be. You know, her character should be someone that we absolutely identify with and absolutely cheer on. And of course, you know, we can't entirely because she is made a victim herself. So I was kind of disappointed in that in the film when I rewatched it. And again, Jake Brigance's wife and daughter have to leave town to keep them safe. You know, there's this whole sort of how do we keep the women safe thing that runs through this and it kind of undermines the women's own power a little bit, which I think comes from the John Grisham novel. Yes, I was going to say, it's very much, I think, is the, the source novel at fault there. Mm. And also, I thought that the fact that the wife and daughter have to conveniently leave town leaves more room for kind of a sexual spark between the two central yes. characters as well. <laughs> it is rather, rather convenient. Yeah, I think it's, it is really interesting watching something back now. It came out in 96. Mm. But yeah, the racial side is very interesting because obviously it's purporting to be very broad-minded and it is showing terrible racial injustice and it is promoting justice. Yeah. But how did you feel about watching it in 2020? I think that's that's exactly it. I think its heart is in the right place, but I don't think it's what we would now term woke, maybe, in quite the right way. So the big sort of, bit of a spoiler here, but the big sort of finale speech, it comes down to, there's a conversation between Carl and Jake and Carl says, look, I didn't hire you because you're the best lawyer. I didn't hire you because, you know, we're best buddies. I hired you because you are a white man and you know how to get into the heads of these white people on the jury. That's your job here, essentially. And so Jake goes in the next day and he lays out the facts of the case in the most sort of emotional, and it is a really emotional scene. It's a, an incredibly emotional recitation of everything that was done to Carl's daughter and the horrors that she experienced. And then he finishes it by telling this jury of white people, now I imagine she's white. Now I imagine basically that that happened to a 10-year-old white girl. And that is the sort of the gasp-inducing moment, the, oh my goodness, I understand now. This is a an attack on a person I identify with in a way that I was unable to do if she were black. That's kind of what he's trying. He's trying to get through the jury's racism. And I think his own racism to do that. But of course, now what we're mostly focusing on is is the racism inherent yeah. in having to yeah. do that and having to be told that black people are people, you know, and that's what makes it incredibly uncomfortable now. And, and there is, I do think its heart is in the right place. I do think it's trying to get past that exact barrier of understanding that we are all people of equal worth and that people still struggle with. But it it feels a little of its time again. Yeah, I think I think it's very interesting to watch actually now in the light of the Black Lives Matter movement and for young mm. people who didn't see it when it came out to watch it now to see 
what the past looked like in a way. I mean, yes. and it's only a fairly recent past, relatively. Obviously, you can go further back and see much more overt racism on screen, unfortunately. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I found it very interesting on all levels. I'd like to think that if it was made now, we'd see the female characters getting a little bit more, uh, you know, interesting roles. Yeah. The victim thing stuck in my throat as well. I said, it just, you feel like she's really wonderful and feisty and really socking it to them, and then suddenly she has to be the victim, and that's like, ah. Mm. But I have to say, I still revisiting it. It's still a gripping film. I think, even with all the spoilers we've just given, it's actually really well done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. And I, it is actually quite a fascinating film, as you've said, to watch again at this moment in time, because I think that contrast is really marked, and I think it actually really speaks to this moment in a strange way. Just you know, not always the way we might wish, but in in a way that is powerful and, and the way that is interesting, and the way that goes to a lot of the problems that we're still facing. So I think that's really, really helpful. And of course, I mean, incredible performances. This was basically Matthew McConaughey's star-making role, but Samuel L. Jackson was not the towering figure that we know now quite at this point. And this was one of the films that I think got him there. So it, it is really good to just go back and see them kind of not quite facing off, but sharing scenes. Yeah, fantastic cast. And I believe Matthew McConaughey originally went for one of the other roles and then asked to play the lawyer. So that's kind of interesting. He was originally cast as one of, the, one of the perpetrators, I believe. Wow. Helen, are you up to anything else you'd like to share with us uh, before you go? I'm sure we'll have you back again if you'll come back. Absolutely, love to. Yeah, um, I'm currently working on a book that has just been announced, so I can finally talk about it. But it's it's called Women versus Hollywood: The Fall and Rise of Women in Film. It won't be out until next February, but it's as the name suggests, it's a sort of history, a past, present, and hopefully future of women in Hollywood and sort of the the obstacles they've overcome, the obstacles that sometimes overcome them, and how we can make the situation a bit more equal in future. Well, we're going to be all over that, as you well know. So we'd love you to come back and talk about that. So best of luck with that. And thank you so much, Helen O'Hara, for coming back on Girls on Film. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. You can watch Legally Blonde on Amazon Prime Video now. Thanks for listening to Girls on Film. And thanks to our executive producer, Hedda Archbold, our producer, Jane Long, our intern, Heather Dempsey, and to Amazon Prime Video. Also, I'd like to give a big shout out to our listener, Rena Azim. She suggested the theme for this episode. We always love to hear from our listeners, so don't hesitate to drop us a line on socials. You can follow us on Twitter at girlsonfilm underscore pod and Instagram on girlsonfilm underscore podcast. Girls on Film has a Patreon page where you can pledge a small amount each month to support us. Go to patreon.com forward slash girlsonfilmpodcast. Don't forget to subscribe and review us if you've enjoyed this episode and do check out our special filmed shows on the BFI's YouTube channel. You've been listening to me, Anna Smith, and I was joined by Kirsten Kiwi-Smith, Karen McCullough and Helen O'Hara in our latest Girls on Film isolation pod. Stay safe, everyone. I object!